all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 471, which is going to be part one of what I'm going to affectionately refer to as the fat shaming suck show, but (laughs) we're going to bring real science today. I do love that um, we're diving in on our science-based approach as always to discuss how harm of weight discrimination and stigma negatively affects health, not the weight itself, but the discrimination associated with it. And we have alluded to this Way back, I think it was about a year ago in episode 421 when we first talked about the science of body image and you and Sarah, you and I had talked about like the, there was an article that we both found really eye-opening about the racist roots of fat phobia and how that just kind of like steamrolled and I know you have been doing a ton of research since um, so it is the driver for today's show. I'm super excited to jump into it, both from like the I have many things to say, we both have many things we feel, but the science is going to lead the discussion in the very least. <laughs> as as is our as 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 is our usual. Um, yeah, for me, you know, as when we first tackled this topic, yeah, about a year ago, I found it very eye opening. And I think one of the things that I found very emotionally challenging about diving into this topic is that weight loss has been a part of my personal health journey and my professional journey as well, as I know it has been for you too, Stacey, uh, to the point where, you know, a successful weight loss story is one of the credentials that even allowed me to establish my voice in, you know, the health conscious community broadly. And so to see that communication of my health journey now through the lens of how even talking about weight from that sort of celebratory side actually propagates and magnifies weight discrimination and stigma because it still places value on a body type, uh, which devalues a different body type. And one of the things that that was really eye-opening for me as I got into this research was going from a sort of complex view of health as being multifaceted, right? We talked about that in depth in episode 436, where we talked about how do we measure health, but going from that to seeing weight itself as potentially not even belonging on that list of, of health metrics, because it is so poorly correlated to health. And one of the things that I started to do when we first got into this topic was I really tried to to reflect on how I talk to myself and how how I think about my 
choices during the day in relation to what they may do to my weight. And I got to a point where I felt like I was relatively dissociated from, you know, thinking about my weight and and health together, but I didn't realize how much more emotional work I still had to do until I sent out a newsletter a beginning of the summer, a few months back, where uh, I basically was, you know, talking about the same type of stuff that we talked about in episode 436, right? Weight's not a particularly good indicator of health. Here's some other ways to measure health. And here's what your doctor can measure. And here's what you can do at home. I received replies to that newsletter from my subscribers that amounted to fat shaming. And I was shocked, first of all, because that made me realize that not only do I have some emotional work to do here for myself, but also the resource needs to be there. That this is not um, this is not information that one podcast is sufficient enough to really permeate and enlighten our community. But the other aspect was, I I really need to go back to the science, um, and I feel like that was my my driver to to really dig super deep into the science on more different aspects of this topic. So not just the harm of you know, being discriminated against due to weight, um, not just the not just the aspect of how weight may or may not correlate with health, but all of the other sort of tangential pieces of it. Um, does losing weight improve health? Does um, does weight discrimination impact um, outcomes from medical treatment? Um, what is the history of this weight discrimination? And so this is an opportunity, I think, in this sort of two-part podcast series to really dig into the science and approach this topic in a more methodical way than I think either one of us were even ready for, frankly, in episode 421, because it was such a, a new concept for us. Well, to be fair, Stacey, you were much more plugged into the body positivity movement at the time than I was. Um, but I'm looking forward to really um, tackling this again. We're going to cover some of the same studies that we covered back then, but we're kind of taking a a different, a different pathway to that sort of end conclusion that, um, Stacey, as you so eloquently put it, fat shaming sucks. <laughs> and I do think that it's worth, as you mentioned, really kind of taking our time to unpack a lot of this, because I know that your audience did not intend to fat shame or even understand that that's what they were doing. And I think that's part of what this diet culture has done to all of us, right? Like we see um, certain things and we're triggered in certain ways and it's inherent to the ideals or the things that have just been a part of culture for so long. Like we assume that when we see a thin person and an overweight person that the thin person is healthier and we're going to yeah. go through the science of why that's not an okay or accurate assumption. And I think 90% of people think that that's a fact, right? Like it's it's yep. so ingrained that we don't even realize that we're judging or that we have an opinion or that it's implicit bias or that it's fat phobia and fat shaming and like all these kinds of things that I have over these years really come to understand. And the other the other thing that I want to say is in part two, we will also be focused on some of the things that we suggest that can be helpful because we're going to be unpacking a lot of things and we don't want anyone to feel shame or guilt in that process. Sarah and I, 
I don't want to say more than you because I don't, I'm listener, I don't know your life, but Sarah and I have a unique position of having done some of this ourselves, being leaders of a health movement, and I'm using quotation marks when I say that, and doing things that we both now realize were contributing to this culture and this negativity, showing before yep. and after photos and talking about our weight as it is tied to our health and all these different things that um, over the years we have each on these different journeys come to understand so much. And we want to take the time to really like walk through that and not feel rushed, which is why we're breaking this into two parts. So I strongly encourage you to make sure that you like close the loop with part two of this. Um, And I hope that it's helpful for you that, that we're not going to rush through 13 pages of scientific notes and references while also going on what I'm sure will amount to emotional rants and tangents. Um, And Sarah, I just also want to give you like a huge high five, um, elbows touching, you know, virtual hug, whatever, whatever it is that's appropriate, because I think that it's amazing that you're willing to kind of unpack that negative feedback and turn it into positive that we can educate ourselves and our listeners and use science to do that. I know not everyone has the same struggles with their weight. So I know we have listeners who want to put on weight or Mm -hmm. um, listeners who have been shamed for being underweight. And I, I won't say all of this applies to those circumstances, but I will say the culture that is made to have us always wanting to be different than where we are is something that I think everyone can relate to, right? Like whether it's your nose or whether it's your body, whether it's, you know, the flab on your arms or, you know, you think you're, you've got chicken legs, like whatever it is, all of these things are things that society has created to have us feel badly about ourselves. And we all wish that we had something different and there's someone else who has what we have that wants something that someone else has, right? It's just this... yeah stupid do loop of just being unhappy. And when you're unhappy, you're more willing to buy things to fix it. Um, And it also, it's just a negative feedback loop, right? Like we kind of, we all feed into that. So we're going to get into that. But I I just want to say how much I appreciate your willingness to have like looked into this. Like you said, it is something that I've been really diving in deep on for so long that um, I feel like I'm, I was like a, a fish swimming in the ocean and I didn't know that I was in water. That's just, that's your reality. And then somehow I got put on land and now I'm like, whoa, that's a big ocean. <laughs> like, and everybody, <laughs> everybody I know is in that ocean. How do I get them out? Um, and that's kind of how I've come to see diet culture. So I hope that we can, you know, slowly unpack a little bit of this and also to remind people that we're not asking you to do anything differently at the end of this show or, you know, part two. One of the things that I love is that this came from a podcast that we've already done and a message you've already been sending about the measurement and metrics of health, right? Like you, Mm -hmm. it was our, we've already kind of been doing that and talking about that for years, by the way. I remember like your three quarters veggies and metrics of health is something that we've been talking about for a really long time. And I think the difference is we are now stating, oh, we realize that we were inherently also attaching that to weight. And we, we weren't really kind of like 
admitting um, some of that stuff ourselves. And not not that we were hiding it intentionally, just that like we didn't realize that that was something that we were still doing, right? And now we are really pulling apart, okay, what does this mean in terms of, of metrics of health? And it's not just wanting to be our best selves or just get healthier and like all these kinds of phrases um, strong is the new skinny, right? Like all these kinds of things that are twisted, like they take this movement and people wanting to change and they're like, okay, let me just manipulate this a little bit into basically saying something different, but the same. And we're going to be asking you listeners to really like try to parse those things out and separate them. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in one year. Um, I will we'll get into, we're both still like on this journey, right? It's not like you just like, boop, oh, I'm out of the ocean now. Everything's fixed. Um, but we're going to keep working on that. And I think the, the place to start is with science for sure. Yeah, I think your point of this is a very different topic than I think a lot of the topics that we tackle on this show in the sense that uh, the information by itself is probably not enough to affect change, right? It's it's not enough to just know the science to be able to reverse the social programming that has occurred for however many years or decades someone is old. And that's been my part of my emotional journey over this last year or so since we first started or since I first started um, really digging into the science. So I definitely want to encourage our listeners to engage with this, engage with this information with an open mind. Um, and, um, and as you said, Stacy, the, the goal here is to not um, perpetuate stigma or guilt um, or negative self-talk. The idea is actually to provide the scientific foundation to help liberate ourselves from that. Um, so I think you know this can be really tough for anyone who has struggled with their weight because we internalize that bias um, and that that fear of failure and inadequacy. So. Um, this can be really hard if you've struggled with your weight to to really let go of weight loss as a goal. That is really, really, really hard to do. I can tell you I've been doing the emotional work to get there and I'm not there yet. Um, but also I think there's the sort of other side of this coin where for uh, those who either have never struggled with their weight or have worked really, really hard to maintain a, a physique that they're really happy with, it can be really challenging to let go of the privilege and esteem that comes with having that. And so I think as we get into the science, I want to acknowledge that this is not just cool information, that this is information that challenges uh, a lot of really instinctual thinking because of how ingrained it is in society to associate weight with health and that this is going to be a really emotionally challenging topic for a lot of people in very different ways. And so I want to acknowledge that, I mean, this has been really challenging for me personally as I've dug into the science. And that's why we wanted to do this as a two-part um, show. We don't do those too often. And the reason why we wanted to take our time with the science is because we understand how um, how against the grain this is. I mean, this is, we don't shy away from, you know, digging into the science that shows that a health fad is not actually based in evidence. 
Um, this feels even bigger than that because this is basically showing how harmful diet culture is, period. And so, um, again, I just want to encourage our listeners to take a breath. This might be one that you want to like pause and come back to and kind of take in bits and pieces because I, I don't know what information is going to be triggering for what person at what time. Um, but I think this is potentially going to be an, an emotional topic to get into. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. I think it's it's been a while for me, so it's also um as much as I can add a like different perception or, you know, knowledge that I've gained, it's also harder to relate to what it was like to kind of first unearth all of this emotionally. So we are excited to bring you along with us and want to remind you that Sarah also has a really in-depth article on her blog that if you're kind of wrestling with this and waiting for part two and you want to dive in deeper, we're of course going to put in all the scientific references and show notes, but you can also go even deeper into the blog post, Can You Really Be Healthy at Any Size on paleomom.com. And with that, are you ready to jump in? I'm absolutely ready. Okay. I love that we get to talk about Paleo Valley again because this week the podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Uh, we love Paleo Valley. We are especially big fans of their 100% grass-fed bone broth protein because it is a rich source of collagen. We covered all the science on why collagen is amazing for our health back in episode 430. But to summarize, 30% of all of our proteins are collagen and it's our main structural protein. So without it, we'd have what? Noodle arms? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, that's that's exactly it. Uh, collagen is essential for bone and cartilage and ligaments and tendons, teeth, connective tissues, skin, muscles, blood vessels, even our corneas. I think what's interesting for me was learning in that episode about how collagen production decreases as we age or have chronic inflammation, stress, nutritional deficiencies, UV radiation, like lots of things. But there is good news because studies show that supplementing with just 10 to 20 grams of collagen every day can combat all of those effects, improving skin health and visible signs of aging, but also speeding up wound healing, improving joint health, increasing bone mineral density, and even increasing muscle mass. I have personally experienced some of those improvements and because of that, I'm super picky about which collagen supplement I use. I want to get the most improvement, so to speak. Um, but I want to also avoid the industrial processes that most collagen uses with harsh chemicals and solvents. Nah. Um, so it's why we both love Paleo Valley. They use 100% grass-fed bone broth protein. Yes. Yeah, so as the name implies, they use 100% grass-fed and grass-finished bones that are free from pesticides and antibiotics and that are slow-simmered in filtered water with nothing else. And unlike slow-simmering yourself at home, um, they do third-party testing to guarantee that you're getting a clean, healthy product. I don't know about you, Sarah, but I'm not third party testing my, <laughs> my bone broth at home and just kind of crossing my fingers and hope that the farmer's not lying to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, I don't third party test my own broth either. Um, the other thing I love about Paleo Valley is that it has almost no flavor. It dissolves super easily, which makes it very versatile. I actually put a giant scoop into my coffee every morning. 
My preference, because I'm not drinking coffee right now, is to put it into smoothies. Uh, but I also add it to recipes or even just with like hot water or um, a different kind of broth to add some extra collagen and um, sip. And I mean, I joked about the third party, but I want to be clear here in that I'm big on testing. Sarah, we've talked about the industrial mm-hmm. chemicals and solvents. And I do love that when I'm sipping that, that it's giving me the comfort, not just of like the flavor, but that I'm really nourishing my body in a safe way, which is something we talk a lot about here. Our listeners can head to paleovalley.com and enter the code THEWHOLEVIEW at checkout to receive 15% off their order. And don't forget to check out Paleo Valley's other fantastic products. We love their grass-fed organ complex, their Mm -hmm. food-based essential C complex, and their fermented meat sticks are one of my boys' favorites. And two AIP flavors. So I'm going to start this topic off with a phrase that I detest. And that phrase is, are you ready for it, Stacey? Correlation does not equal causation. It's like almost as bad as everything in moderation. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Those are like the two most triggering phrases for me because they're typically used to dismiss evidence, right? So correlation does not equal causation. We often find that being used by people who are basically dismissing epidemiological studies, even when you look at the field of research as a whole and see that that correlation in those studies are supported by mechanistic studies to back them up. So typically that phrase is used to cherry pick studies. Um, But in this particular case, when we're looking at what would be considered obesity research, it's 100% true. Um, So many chronic diseases are associated with obesity, and I think that's sort of well understood probably by our listeners. Those chronic diseases include heart disease, type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, even some forms of cancer. But there's actually a really broad collection of important studies from the last 25 to 30 years that have revealed that overweight and obesity themselves are not the risk factor increasing the chances of having one of those obesity-associated diseases. But instead, the obesity is a symptom. It's a symptom of maybe an underlying health challenge like chronic stress or gut dysbiosis or hypothyroidism or insulin resistance. And it is that underlying health challenge that is actually causing the increased risk of these other chronic illnesses or obesity uh, can be an indicator of poor health-related behaviors, like a sedentary lifestyle or poor diet quality, in which case it is the poor health-related behaviors that are actually the, the thing that are driving the increased incidence of chronic diseases. And so that is an actually really different way to look at weight than how I think most of us have been taught. Um, And so we are going to get into all of the different studies and the different ways that this this, um, is looked at and measured um, coming from sort of different angles in order to make the case for overweight and obesity themselves to not be the, the problem, but rather the underlying conditions so we can see obesity as a symptom rather than 
a health problem in its own right. Um, and also the weight discrimination that comes with being obese in our current society that values uh, very thin and, and often underweight bodies more than what would be medically considered obese. And we'll, we'll talk about where the definitions are also probably not uh, great. I think the interesting thing for me on this is, and it like triggers direct memories that I've had of going to the doctors and mm -hmm. hearing, um, well, if you lost the weight, then this, right? But like the weight is a symptom of something else. And I mean, I've talked about how, gosh, I think it was like two years ago at this point, I was having um, some really serious health issues and went to a doctor and was told um, that it was something in my intestines and uh, digestive kind of related. And I remember reaching out to you and saying, does this sound right to you? And you're like, Stacy, this is something that comes from eating fast food all the time. <laughs> you're like, this doesn't seem right. I don't remember what the name of that was, but do you remember? Uh, was, it, was it, it was non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. No, they were it was telling you you had a fatty liver, wasn't it? Yeah. That was also something um, from like years ago. But then this one in particular was was something in in the intestines, and it was like pop, like like pop pop popules or something like in the polyps I, something I don't know anyway. yeah not that but it what it ended up being was that I was dehydrated because I'd started water aerobics and the um, chlorine like you and I ended up doing the research because I'd gone to the ER and they gave me an IV and I like almost immediately started feeling better. And um, so then I was talking to the doctor, that ER doctor, after I started feeling better from the IV was like, oh, well, then he started to ask me some dehydration questions and exercise. I, to that point, had seen multiple doctors and no one at all had asked me about my physical activity. Not a single person assumed that I was moving my body. The people assumed that I was like eating a bunch of junk food. And that's what the problem was. And that's, that's what we're kind of getting into here, right? And we're going to get into the um, discrimination of how medical professionals and many others are not incorporating some of the science we're going to go into today and how that negatively affects people from not getting proper health diagnosis. Because, I mean, the fact that I was, I was simply dehydrated and nobody even asked me if I was exercising. And for me, I'm an, I didn't know that going into a pool would be dehydrating. And you and I ended up doing the research on the chemicals and talking about it on the show. But I think that's a really good example of what we're talking about, right? Is that like you look at a fat body and you're like, oh, this person eats junk food and they don't move. And that's why they're fat. Instead of oh, this person might have an underlying health condition that is causing them to be overweight despite the fact that they are exercising and eating healthy. And by the way, just because you're eating healthy or eating fast food doesn't mean you're going to be thin or overweight. Like I know plenty of thin people who love fast food and I know plenty of overweight people who eat vegetables all the time. You know, like it's just those yeah. are the assumptions and the correlations that we, we're all making in our head that we really have to challenge ourselves to say, nope, I don't know that. And, it, and even if it's true, it's not my business. <laughs> you know, so. All right. Just want to share a little bit of personal because I think it's helpful if you know something that's happened to someone that you might be able to relate to and and the fact that this doctor 
who was also the same doctor who didn't believe that I had a gluten issue and figured out that my white blood cell count was a cause of gluten. So I don't know why I was still seeing that doctor and I'm not seeing him anymore. Um, but this is, this is part of the problem that we're going to get into is like, I just avoid going to the doctor because I don't like hearing negative things and being talked down to and hearing wrong assumptions. And that is part of the absolute problem. So why don't you get into the science on that? (laughs) Yeah. So let's, um, as much as there's like so much to unpack there and we'll, we'll get to all of the different little bits. I know our listeners are like, Oh, I want to know more about that. And about that, about that. Uh, we've got science to back up all of that experience, Stacey. I want to start with the very simple, assumption that overweight and obese are unhealthy and that thin is healthy. Because what the science shows is that we actually can't conflate those things. We can't actually draw a straight line between somebody's weight and someone's health. One of the most rigorous studies to look at this was a 2008 study where they measured the cardiometabolic health of over 5,400 participants, and they deemed them metabolically abnormal if they had two or more elevated indices. So they were looking at blood pressure, serum triglycerides, fasting plasma glucose, C-reactive protein, which is a, a general measure of inflammation, HOMA index, which is a general measure of insulin resistance, and serum LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol that's linked with uh, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And then they separated those people by BMI. So BMI, of course, is not a perfect measure of somebody's weight. There's the classic example of the bodybuilder who has a super lean body type who has the same elevated BMI as somebody who, you know, doesn't get off the couch and eats 8,000 calories a day and is um, where their body composition is a high percentage of body fat, right? So that's the, the classic example. But BMI is a very useful tool in these types of studies because on average, when you're looking at large groups of people, that bodybuilder is going to be the exception. So when you look at the average in that group, Um, it's going to be representative of the average body composition that goes with that BMI. So in this study, they looked at uh, overweight individuals. That's a BMI between 25 and 30. And a little over half of them were perfectly metabolically healthy. Among the obese individuals, about a third were perfectly metabolically healthy. And among normal weight individuals, about a quarter were metabolically abnormal. I mean, just there by itself, um, it shows that we cannot make the assumption that overweight and obese are unhealthy if that large of a percentage in those categories are cardiometabolically healthy. Um, And also, there's a quarter of thin people who are metabolically abnormal who maybe don't know it, um, who maybe aren't getting the medical care to identify those risk factors because it's assumed that they're healthy. So this type of assumption uh, leads to leads to bias that dis- is a disservice to everyone, right? So it means that people who are metabolically healthy are potentially experiencing weight discrimination, potentially not getting the type of medical care that is necessary for a health condition because it's being blamed on being overweight. And people who are thin are potentially not getting appropriate preventative medical care because the assumption is made that they're healthy and so these things are not being investigated further. Um, The study went further to evaluate risk factors other than weight that uh, were linked with poor cardiometabolic health. 
And actually, it was really interesting because under among the normal weight individuals, they showed that being older, male, or physically inactive increased risk of metabolic abnormalities, but there were more risk factors for overweight and obese people. So in that group, being middle-aged or older, being male, having a race uh, or ethnicity other than non-Hispanic black, um, as well as imbibing two alcoholic beverages per day or more, smoking that included current smokers or ever smokers, and having a sedentary lifestyle style and or a high waist circumference, each independently increased the risk of having metabolic abnormalities. But what was really fascinating was between both groups, physical activity was the most protective for no matter what your weight. So normal weight and overweight and obese individuals. And they actually were able to striate by physical activity. They measured that something called metabolic equivalent tasks, which is basically a measurement of like how many calories we burn relative to our body weight during a day. And they showed that those people who had 280 metabolic equivalent tasks per day or more had the lowest risk of metabolic abnormalities. And that equates to uh, walking about one and a half hours per day at three miles per hour. So that's kind of how the level of activity that was associated with the healthiest people in this study. So I want to stick a pin in that because physical activity is is definitely going to be thematic because one of the things that we see as we dive into these studies, spoiler alert, um, is that what ends up being the really important correlate with health is not weight, it's health behaviors. So physical activity being one of the most important things for cardiometabolic health just keeps coming up over and over and over again as the actual important thing. And that that knowledge goes back more than 20 years. The, the first study to really dig into that in depth was a 1999 perspective study and included over 25,000 men. And they looked at how BMI uh, correlated with mortality from cardiovascular disease, as well as all-cause mortality. All-cause mortality is a, a very good general indicator of health and longevity over a 10-year follow-up. So it's a, just a huge amount of data. Um, and what they found was when they just did the simple, we're just going to put people into these three BMI categories, right? Uh, normal weight, overweight, and obese. And we're just going to look at how many people die from cardiovascular disease or die from anything over that 10 years. And what they showed with that very simplistic view is that um, certainly um, obese people had a higher chance of dying from cardiovascular disease, about two and a half times higher, about a two times higher risk of dying from any cause um, compared to normal weight people. But then they also found that the obese and overweight individuals we're also much more likely to have sedentary lifestyles. Again, looking at obesity as a symptom, not a cause. And so when they striated based on physical fitness, a very different picture of the actual risks for mortality emerged. So looking just at cardiovascular disease, um, unfit people had a way higher risk of cardiovascular disease compared to fit. So if you compared fit normal weight men unfit normal weight men had over a three times higher risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. That's all in the normal weight category. Overweight unfit men had a four and a half times higher risk and obese unfit men had a five times higher risk uh, from dying from cardiovascular disease specifically. 
but fitness was incredibly protective. So overweight fit men only had a one and a half times higher risk of dying from cardiovascular disease and obese fit men had a 1.6 times higher risk. And the, the, that even that increase in mortality risk from cardiovascular disease, when you look at all cause mortality, it looks even more impressive because when you looked at all cause mortality, uh, unfit men had a, about a double 2.2 times higher risk compared to fit normal weight men. Overweight had a 2.5 times risk on un, unfit overweight men and obese unfit men had a 3.1 times higher risk, but men, fit, overweight, and obese men only had a 1.1 times higher risk compared to fit, normal weight men. So that's almost the same, right? It's about a 10% increase. And the implication there, right? The reason why it's so much lower, it's so much closer to equal across the board, no matter what the weight is, is that even though there was a slight increase in cardiovascular disease risk, it means there was protection in some other forms of mortality. Often in studies that do this analysis, you kind of see a give and take between cancer mortality and cardiovascular disease mortality, although this study did not uh, explore other other causes of mortality other than cardiovascular disease. But as they did their statistical analysis, which also corrected for all kinds of other factors, basically what they showed was that fitness was not only an independent predictor of mortality across the board, independent of body mass index, but that actually it was by far the most important factor. The only factor, risk factor, when they kind of looked at everything else, the only other risk factor that was more important than fitness was previously diagnosed cardiovascular disease, which makes a ton of sense. And so what this study really shows is that it's really important to not just look at weight, but to look at health behaviors, right? And um, weight may be a symptom of, right? So the overweight and obese people in the study were more likely to be sedentary, but certainly by no means were they all sedentary, right? So we get a, we're again trying to get away from that assumption that being overweight means that you have poor health-related behaviors because there's other things that can be driving weight gain, even in the case where health-related behaviors are are good. And certainly, as the previous study showed, it's also just being overweight by itself. If your health-related behaviors are are good ones doesn't mean that you're unhealthy. And so this, this 1999 study has also been, there's been several studies that have duplicated these results in different uh, groups. So it's been shown in men and women, and they've also done studies where they've looked at other measures of uh, overweight. So they've looked at not just BMI, but also body fat percentage, body fat mass, waist circumference. And all of these show the same thing, that weight itself is not increasing risk. It is um, the the active lifestyle piece of it. So it's uh, as soon as you start correcting for activity and fitness, you start to see that that's actually what's driving any differences between BMI groups. I just was like having this vision of like being an active person and getting getting so so much thought process in the other direction and wishing I'd had 
like poster boards of this to be you know those movies where they like take one poster board off and you just like let people read like with your statistics like here I am working out everything's great it's fine um (laughs) I think the the thing that um also really kind of stands out is just to kind of recap for everybody because I know as you were going through um might have gotten confusing about like the different statistics that Sarah was giving, but ultimately, you know, what I'm hearing is that being overweight or obese does not automatically make you healthy, nor does it automatically make you unhealthy either. And the same goes with being thin. Like you, we can't define. And I think when we say that out loud, logically, I don't think that that's hard for people to understand and agree with, right? Like, I, th- I think, I hope that we've done enough educating and sharing here. And I know that there are other educators, um, at least that I know I've focused and prioritized bringing into my life that if I hear that, I'm like, well, of course not. But I think what's interesting and as we'll kind of go through the rest of the data, we realize that, um, we might be able to logically say, well, of course, being thin doesn't automatically make you healthy. Um, but that is the implicitness in our culture. And that is part of how our brain perceives things, whether we intend to or not. And so making those assumptions of health based on someone's body weight really does everyone that disservice and propels the weight stigma and all the detriments that we've you know, that you heard me talk about my own personal experience and um, how fails to identify risk factors for, I know we're using the term normal weight people. I don't like that term either, but, you know, we're using the terms of these studies. Um, And, you know, when people are of, um, so for example, my grandmother died of a stroke and was less than a hundred pounds, you know, and, and I don't mm-hmm. think that her, she was properly given like medical attention for the anticipation of that because she was a small petite woman, you know what I mean? And I, um, I think there's a lot of instances like that, that just, it kind of breaks my heart to think through what this science could do. Um, if, were if it were in the hands of the right people and we could change the social dynamic. And one of the ways that I've, I mean, I obviously can't control medical professionals, although I do think that, you know, leaving reviews and getting a right medical professional for you is important. There are resources that you can use to find good ones and all that kind of stuff we've shared before. We actually had a show on doctors versus functional medical professionals um, and, Um, nutritional therapists and that kind of stuff that might be helpful to go back to. But one of the things that I personally do to try to like break that stigma is ask myself, if I saw a thin person doing this behavior, would I feel the same way about it if I saw an overweight person doing this behavior? And Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I saw on social media, I think it was just last week, actually, there's a woman that I follow who is... um, very large bodied. And I intentionally follow people who I would have been triggered by seeing a couple of years ago because of my own shame with my own body, right? So the more bodies that I see like mine, or doing things that I might not have been comfortable doing, the more it becomes normalized for me. And I think that's necessary for all people, all ages, all 
ethnicities, like all those things, right? Like we need representation. And this woman challenges our ideals of appropriateness intentionally. This is an educator. And she made this post of herself eating a donut, eating this like giant piece of pizza, laying in bed. And immediately upon seeing the photo, I thought to myself, oh, she shouldn't do that. And, you know, I used Mm. the should word. And it took me a moment to kind of like catch myself and read the caption, which was like, if you felt a certain way about seeing these images of me, would you feel the same way if you saw a thin woman doing these things? And it was totally jarring for me to know that like I've been on this journey and following so many educators and even spoken on panels and things myself right here on the show. And yet I had that thought myself, right? And, and, but I will say I'm learning to pull that apart. And so I think if we continue to ask ourselves, all of us, and encourage others to, would you feel that same way if a thin person were doing that thing? Like, why are we judging? And that is part of the kind of next part of the science that I think is more interesting to me, I, I'm definitely comfortable with and understand a lot of like the groundwork that we're laying. But I think this like cultural bias that we all have and how it's so pervasive and difficult to break is the thing that really um, has been my passion of late, at least. I think what's so harmful about this bias as well, um, while, while we're kind of here before we get into the next study with lots of numbers, um, is that that bias is internalized, right? So it's not just that we experience it from other people, is that we believe it. And then the other piece of it that I think is also so insidious is that weight stigma and bias and discrimination doesn't have to be framed negatively, right? So it doesn't have to be, oh, you should lose weight, right? It doesn't have to be that that person who's just being a jerk about it. It can be well-meaning. It can be supportive. It can even be positive, right? So just think about, um, think about complimenting someone. Oh, you look so great. Have you lost weight, right? That's such a lovely, positive thing to say. But what's actually communicated emotionally underneath that is you have more value now that you are lighter. And if that person struggles to continue to lose weight, gain some of that weight back, we're definitely going to to talk about yo-yo dieting today, then that person internalizes, I had more value when I was lighter and I have less value now that I am not maintaining that. And it's also, we, as, as you alluded to earlier, Stacey, we seem to equate overweight and obesity or even um, the yo-yo, right? Even the gaining some weight back as somehow a personal failing, somehow a lack of willpower, like lack of strength, um, that it was somehow uh, it's laziness. It's, you know, um, it, in fact, uh, 120-ish years ago, as uh, sort of the origins of fat shaming um, and the, the origins are, you know, prior to basically the early 20th century, being overweight was associated with uh, prosperity. And uh, then it became, it was sort of like racialized and it was sort of racist influences, um, extremist um, 
evangelical religion influences and classism that kind of all combined to really shift the perspective into associating overweight with basically like associating it with like slovenly debauchery. Like it was kind of every, you know, possible thing that was unacceptable in society was kind of all lumped together with weight. And so as you look into the history of this, which we're not going to get into into detail in this podcast series, but it is described uh, with some links to some papers if you're really interested in the history of this in my article on my website. Um, but it's it's also really interesting to sort of look at how how the experience, the roots of the experience are in this um, so these very racist roots, and it's come to a place where it's it's so internalized. Even a positive experience can drive it, and there's no safe space. There's no place where somebody who is unhappy with their body can be and be happy with their body. It's not. It's not. Um, like other forms of discrimination where you can be with your people and not be experiencing that discrimination and have your safe space. Um, and so because it's so internalized it, and there's so many opportunities in the day to self-discriminate and, and apply weight bias to ourselves. Every time we eat, every time we make a health-related choice, we can be applying this bias to our own self-talk. And that's why it is so pervasive. And we're actually in the the second part of this series going to be talking about some of the um, studies showing that the harm of weight discrimination is additive on other forms of discrimination, which are also, I don't want to um, uh, minimize those because they're also very harmful to health. Um, so we're going to get into some of that science as well. Yeah, I think it's a really good point about positivity. And it's something that I think is one of those steps that we can all do to just not ever comment on someone's body. And, um, you know, I liken it to um, how, how do you want to be perceived? If you want to be thin, and you um, take pride in your appearance for whatever, however you value your appearance, I think that's really important for you to understand. I think what we're asking you to do is look at the roots of why that might be. <laughs> I personally really love mascara. I will wear <laughs> mascara every single day and I have no reason to do it. There is absolutely no reason to wear mascara. Like there's no justifiable like, well, it's healthier for me. No, like there's no reason to wear mascara, but I love it. And I don't love it because society tells me or because of whatever. It's because I personally like the way it looks and I like how I feel and it's just for me. And I think that's what we're asking you to do is to to listen to some of this science and to understand how it has affected our perceptions of ourselves and our perceptions of others and to start to break down that just ingrained nature and to really ask yourself, like, am I continually habitually losing the same five, 10 pounds over and over again, and then gaining it back and then losing the weight and gaining it back because I really care about those five or 10 pounds myself because I like it and it's about me and what I want? 
or is it about something else? And I, I say that specifically because we know from previous podcasts, um, specifically our Beachbody Yo-Yo show, that that habitual weight loss cycle of losing, losing gaze, gaining, oh, let me say that again. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Gaining and losing those same pounds, whatever they might be, actually has a lot of um, health detriment. And I know, Sarah, you have some really great science to kind of support that. For sure. I think think we should start with this idea of normal BMI um, and how we define normal. So um, it helps to know that when, um, sort of in the mid nineties, when the, the BMI became a, a measure that was used in doctor's offices and not just in scientific studies, uh, normal was defined by the world health organization at 25 because it was a nice round number, right? So, um, between 18.5 and 25 was considered normal. And it, it really was not actually based in science showing that that was the BMI range that had the best health outcomes. And in fact, a, a 2005 study, this is often the study sort of credited as being beginning of what's called the obesity paradox. But actually, as we've already covered, there was, you know, basically 15 years um, of studies leading up to this. Um, so um, studies basically go back to the earliest, early to mid 90s, so maybe 10 years, um, where starting to to really dissect the the link between BMI and health outcomes and whether it's actually the weight or, as we've already covered, physical activity or something else. Um, and this study was one of the most rigorous to, to control for as many different factors as possible. So they controlled for gender, for age, for smoking. And that was something that a lot of other previous works were criticized for, for not doing. So um, previous studies that uh, didn't, cr- uh, didn't control for smoking were sort of criticized for showing that normal weight uh, or underweight individuals had higher mortality because that captures more smokers because smoking elevates metabolism and those people are, are thinner on average. So it was sort of, there was always these, these ways to explain away those results until this study came along. And all of a sudden their statistics were so rigorous that those explanations could not be made anymore. And what they showed was that the overweight category, that's a BMI between 25 and 30, had lower mortality rates than people in the normal weight category, a BMI between 18.5 and 25. And the people who were underweight had the highest mortality rate in the whole study. And then what they did is what I thought really fascinating was they actually striated data by age and smoking status and started to show some really other interesting um, sort of subgroup analyses. Um, So for example, in people over 70 years old, being underweight increased mortality risk by 1.7 times, whereas class two obesity, that is a BMI of greater than 35, only increased mortality risk by 1.17 times. And having a normal BMI or class one obesity were about the same in terms of mortality risk and overweight had the lowest mortality risk in that older age group, which makes me think of your grandmother, right? Like it's, um, it's actually been very well established, not just in this study, but in plenty of other studies that a weight becomes more protective as we age. 
Um, but in this study, even in never smokers age 25 to 59, both overweight and class one obesity had lower mortality risk than normal weight individuals. They were 36% lower for overweight and 23% lower for class one obesity. And both underweight and class two obesity had identical elevated mortality risk at 1.25 times, about 25% increase in a younger cohort who weren't smokers. So again, I think this study starts to challenge even the idea of how we're defining overweight and obesity and normal weight and defining what the goal even, even would be if, if we were able to point to a correlation between weight and health. Um, and this has been, again, sort of further, further um, shown in other studies. There was a, a 2013 meta-analysis of 97 studies that included 2.88 million individuals, which is like just a crazy huge data set. And it's ironic because the study was published the same year um, that the American Medical Association pathologized obesity and, and made obesity a uh, weight a diagnosis against, I might add, the advice of the committee who was uh, studying it. So the committee said, no, obesity should not be a diagnosis. And they did it anyways. There's a lot of really interesting politics behind that decision. Again, that's covered in more detail in my article if you're interested. But they also, with that huge data set, confirmed that class one obesity was not associated with a higher mortality and that overweight was the lowest all-cause mortality compared to normal weight individuals, which to me just means we are defining normal weight wrong. We are, again, putting value erroneously on a body type that is actually less healthy on average. It's literally blowing my mind. And I think what excites me, however, is have you seen, oh, you have, you have young, young teenagers in your house. So you probably have mm -hmm. seen there's a, um, like viral thing happening because of TikTok where, um, like teenage girls were sharing that they were choosing to not get weighed in the doctor's office. And so cool. it's so cool, right? Like there was, uh, there was like, I don't know how many, you know, who started it or whatever, but I just know that it went viral, that it was like, um, a girl went into the doctor's office and they were like, okay, get, get weighed. And she's like, no thanks. And just kept, kept walking into the exam room. <laughs> like, like, I'm not even here to entertain that for you. Like I'm just moving right along. And I think about how, medical charts now, if there is no weight to document, right, and you pick up someone's medical chart, are you only looking at their symptoms instead of a classification, a diagnosis of overweight or obese, and which then inherently because of this culture and because of the stigma is driving someone's perception of what the symptoms might be leading to in or oh, it's, it's because of the weight instead of let me look at the symptoms and see how, how I can treat this person or what it might be indicating, right? Like there is so much power in just removing that from the discussion. And that is how we get to thinking about it as a symptom versus 
a cause, right? Like it's just, Mm -hmm. it's so huge, this like TikTok meme. And I'm just like, I'm here for it because you're telling me it doesn't even, it's not even accurate in the medical science anyway. And we already know from a prior show that the BMI is more wrong than it is right, right? If we piece apart those numbers you gave us in the very beginning about the number of, you know, one third um, obese, one quarter underweight, and you do that math, like of what it's telling you is a BMI is more often incorrect than it is correct to predict health based on weight classifications within that chart. And so it's, I mean, we know that exercise and all these things are great and we're going to, you know, get to that. But I think this, this power of numbers, I mean, I'm a numbers person. I'm a, I'm a super data geek. I love a good Excel spreadsheet. So for me (laughs) to look at this kind of stuff, I'm just like, and the teenagers are taking it one step further and just removing this from a, like, oh, you don't, you no longer have this data. We're going to put that over here. Now you address my symptoms. Like, how amazing is that? I, so I love it. And I also want to share that um, basically it was, I think it was the week after I had, I had done all this research and I, I was still writing up the the article, can you really be healthy at any size for my website? And I had my like phone call follow up with my doctor because um, I've only been doing phone telemedicine basically is the whole pandemic. And um, and I told him about this research and I said, um, I'm, I'm not going to um, want to weigh myself when I come into the office anymore. I am getting rid of my scale. And I, I didn't actually get rid of it. I put it in with the suitcases because I figure weighing a suitcase before traveling, assuming that I will someday want to travel again, is very useful, um, but it is no longer out. I no longer walk past it several times a day when I go to the bathroom, like it's, it's gone. And that's the first time I have in, I, I mean, since I moved out of my house, um, that I have not had a scale looking at me every single day. And I told him I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in weighing myself anymore. You know, we, we track lots of other things related to my health that are actually informative. And he was like, okay, Cool. Send me send me that article when you're finished. And I I just want to encourage people. Now I am very very fortunate to have a functional medicine doctor who is super in tune with science, and he's really really amazing to to work with. Um, and I have a really good long established relationship with him because we've worked. I mean, he's been my doctor for eight years or something like that. Um, so I I am definitely I, I recognize how fortunate I am to have such a great doctor. But it's worthwhile having a conversation, I think, because we also see, um, you know, medical discrimination is very problematic. And I think, you know, having this conversation, I want to talk about um, my health in other ways. I want to talk about my blood pressure and my serum lipids and my C-reactive protein and my, you know, I want to talk about my symptoms. I want to talk about my energy levels and, and my GI tract, right? There's so many other things that are actually more informative for health. I want to talk about how successful I am uh, living an active lifestyle and how many servings of vegetables I'm eating every day. All of those things are more important. One of the things that I really want to emphasize as we're digging into the science, and I know this next topic is going to be really, really hard for people to hear. Um, So one of the things I, I want to emphasize is we are in no way saying that it, you know, give up, right? We're no way, we're not saying it you know, uh, eat whatever you want, intuitive eating, which we've already talked about, um, on the podcast where that doesn't actually 
that's not actually it, right? The way that it's being used as an excuse to just eat whatever, right? Again, it's like an everything in moderation uh, phrase when it's being used to um, not make the the healthier choices and not that we're saying that everyone needs to be perfect all of the time. Neither one of us are. Um, but what we're actually emphasizing here with this research is that the diet and lifestyle are, are actually the most important thing. They are the thing that's important. And it's important to separate out the efforts that we're making to improve the quality of our diet and dial in lifestyle factors from the goal of weight loss. That is the actual take home message of all of this, but please keep listening because this next science is really cool. (laughs) I love that because I do think how many people we've heard from who are like, I'm doing all the things and I feel better and I have more energy and my autoimmune disease is going into remission, but I'm not losing weight. I mean, how many times have you heard that? All the time. I mean, seven times this week. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, it's such a good example of, well, I don't hear a pro, you know, for me, I'm like, I don't hear, you just told me you're improving your health. Like, okay. All right. So let's move on. Let's, let's dive into the science a little bit about that. And I know I'm here for this. I'm ready for it. And I trust that our listeners are as well. I love that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. As so much of fat phobia and diet culture is actually a mental shift versus dietary, and as someone with a history of disordered eating, therapy was critical to my healing. It's also something our whole house has done, especially with the collective trauma of the past year. I also have benefited greatly from therapy, ranging just from having someone to talk things through with to skill building workshops actually offered by my therapist. One of the most useful of which was a workshop on effective communication that I took in a group therapy session 25 years ago, but it had such a deep impact on my life that I'm still using those skills every single day. And that's just one example of how life-changing therapy can be. I love that. And BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's important to emphasize that BetterHelp is not a crisis line and it's not self-help either. It is professional therapy done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which might not be available to you locally. And the service is available for clients worldwide. One of the challenges we had in person was finding people available and taking new clients which when you're feeling down can really be a barrier to entry and BetterHelp makes that such a breeze. One of the many things that I think is awesome about BetterHelp is that you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. I also think that the right therapist for you at the right time in your life is super important for maximizing the benefits that you can get from therapy. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so you can make it easy to change therapists if needed. Plus, it's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. And they have information on their website about insurance coverage too. Our listeners can visit betterhelp.com slash whole view that's better h-e-l-p and join the over two million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional 
In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. It's a special offer for the Whole View listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash wholeview. This was the line that I actually read in a review article that shocked me the most as I was doing this research. And then I went and read every single citation inside that section in the review article, and then went and read the citations in each one of those papers. Like it opened this huge can of worms for me personally, and I know it will for a lot of our listeners. But it turns out, Stacey, I know you're ready for this. Turns out it has never actually been scientifically proven that losing weight makes you healthier. You want to say it one more time for the person in the back? It turns out that it has never, ever been scientifically proven that losing weight makes you any healthier. And actually, there's some ways that losing weight may have the opposite effect. So, I mean, the yo-yo diet piece, I think, is important to acknowledge here. Um, So um, there are... The body does not seem to like losing weight a whole heck of a lot, which is also, to me, I, I want to know why. So there's um, all of these different studies. We talked about this in episode 353, Beach Body Yo-Yo. But uh, there's all of these studies showing that uh, when we lose weight, our basal metabolic rate drops and our ghrelin, a hunger hormone that makes us hungry, increases. And those things together mean the more weight we lose, the hungrier we are, and also the fewer calories we're burning. So the body is essentially fighting uh, us losing weight, and it effectively means we need more and more willpower to maintain a bigger and bigger caloric deficit. And this was, of course, shown the most extremely in the uh, Biggest Loser contestants and all of the studies that were published on them. But the other piece of this is that the body fights basically against that weight loss, um, which tends to drive yo-yo dieting. So studies have shown that um, only less than a quarter, basically like 23% of people maintain weight loss within five years of losing weight. 77% of people who lose weight gain it all back again within five years. And that's not just some of the weight, that's all the weight. That's all of the weight. Wow. Yeah. Um, so 23% maintain some of the weight loss, oh, up to all of it, right? So um, so the, the body really fights against that, that losing weight. And what happens when we go through that cycle of losing weight, gaining it back, losing weight, gaining it back, even if you're, you're cycling down, right, and you're a little bit lighter with every cycle, Um, although it's much more common to cycle up. So you're a little bit heavier with every cycle. What happens is during the the weight loss phase of that yo-yo, the body loses some muscle mass as well as fat. And then in the weight regain piece of the yo-yo, fat is regained more easily than muscle. So the body composition is shifting to a less and less, less and less lean mass with each cycle of the yo-yo. So just that change in body composition increases risk for type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease more than the association with obesity. So if that person were to maintain an obese weight, their 
their uh, risk of those chronic health conditions. Again, obesity, assume, like thinking of obesity as a symptom here and not thinking of it as the driver, but their risk is actually lower than if they yo-yo back and forth, even if the yo-yo is, is, is slowly moving, inching downwards. Um, and so that, that's one piece of, of weight loss doesn't make you healthier. It's, it's the piece of the body really fighting against it and, um, body composition changing, not for the better with every single cycle of the yo-yo, but going all the way back to the nineties, there've been a couple of studies that have looked at, again, sort of all cause mortality and looked at, um, people who have intentionally lost weight, versus those who haven't and how that affects all-cause mortality. And there's it, there's no theme across the board. It How that affects your uh, risk for mortality is related to health conditions. So a 1995 study in women aged 40 to 64 who had never smoked and had no pre-existing condition, those women who intentionally lost around 20 pounds or a little bit less had an increased mortality rate during the follow-up period. So the healthy women who lost a little bit of weight had higher mortality rate. But in that same study, women with obesity-related health conditions, again, that's the medical uh, terminology. So that means things like diabetes. If they lost some weight, they did have a reduction in all-cause mortality. Um, and uh, women with no pre-existing uh, illness who lost a larger amount of, of weight um, had a slight reduction in all-cause mortality, but it was that, you know, um, it was either the loss of less than 20 pounds or if the weight loss took place over at the length of period of a year, that was generally associated with increases in mortality. And then that same group did a similarly designed study looking at men instead of women and found it was even more kind of all over the place. So uh, men without pre-existing conditions who lost over 20 pounds had a 48% increased risk of diabetes-associated mortality during the follow-up period. And men with pre-existing conditions who intentionally lost over 25 pounds, or over 20 pounds, sorry, had a 25% higher rate of cancer mortality. So in men, there's even more different like subgroups that had increased mortality um, when they intentionally lost weight compared to women. Um, so Can I ask the, a question? Yeah, sure. I am wondering if you know it's because 77% of those people then gained that weight back plus some, right? Like we know that that is so often the case. Um, I'm, I'm just curious if there was in this follow-up of all-cause mortality, did they note if any of the people had maintained that weight loss? Not that I'm like saying, oh, all you need to do is just when you lose weight, like maintain that. I'm not trying to justify. I'm just trying to understand logically, like how that works. Like you said, like, why? You know what I'm like? There's, it's fascinating to me because we know from previous shows that when they do gain the weight back, they're actually having lost muscle mass and increasing fat mm -hmm. and how harmful that is. And, you know, I'm trying to like work through what that, what that looked like. So they were looking at their, their time period measurements were a year. So they weren't looking at that yo-yo within the year. They were looking at 
beginning of the year to the end of the year and whether or not that weight loss occurred and then through surveys, whether or not that weight loss was intentional. Um, so they weren't actually even putting unintentional weight loss into those groups. Um, so that probably doesn't capture uh, yo-yo dieting in the same way as how we've already talked about it. But again, there's, you know, not very many people lose weight on a straight line. Um, I think the, this, this signal is coming from not the harm of yo-yo dieting, but the protective nature of being, uh, having an overweight BMI. Uh, and again, this was not striated by BMI, which is also really interesting. Um, but it's, it's a showing that, so I think it's helpful to say that type, uh, type two diabetics generally in both studies in both men and women had the biggest decreases in mortality with intentional weight loss. And it was people with no pre-existing conditions that tended to see worse outcomes with weight loss, which really shows that it's complex and that, um, you know, there's plenty of studies showing that, uh, in type two diabetics, uh, losing weight can help to regulate insulin a little bit better. Also regulating insulin a little bit better can help to lose weight. So chicken and egg effect right there. But I think that, you know, what we're really seeing is that, um, is that it's not whether or not that weight is protective versus harmful is context dependent. And then also a piece of this is the traditional way that people lose weight is with caloric restriction. So it also shows that caloric restriction typically also means nutrient restriction, just because most people are not choosing super nutrient dense foods and most people are not upping the nutrient density of their food choices when they're reducing their portion sizes. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And so it, it's capturing, a, I think, a really complex system. I think the, the most important takeaway here is that um, if losing weight was protective, if losing weight improved health, we would see even a small signal across the board, right? No matter what your starting point was, that losing weight would make you healthier. You'd even expect to see that losing more weight improved health even more. And that's not what the study is showing. It's showing that whether or not intentional weight loss improves health outcomes um, is completely dependent on the pre-existing conditions. And so, um, and so it's, and so it's not, it's not, there's no theme, right? There's no, there's no, um, strong evidence that weight loss is beneficial. There is, oh, it's beneficial for these people and harmful for these people. And it makes it even murkier waters because it, I mean, I don't know how a doctor who had read those studies could, could walk away and want to recommend to their overweight patients that they lose weight because these studies show that that isn't the right, uh, recommendation, um, the right recommendation, again, is to focus on health-related behaviors. And what's interesting to me is these studies are not new. You're, we're looking at studies from the 1900s. <laughs> Sorry. <I couldn't. laughs> you, make it, you make it sound like, like 150 years old. That's, I mean, that's yeah. how Wesley refers to it, and it cracks me up. And um, it's it happens to be Cole's <laughs> 16th birthday. I've got my 40th birthday next week. So I'm just, I'm feeling a little old and I'm referring to things <laughs> as like ye olden days of the 1900s. But my point is like, 
These studies are available to medical professionals. The problem is, is once they're done and out of school, and we know that it takes a really long time for the medical literature to make its way into the education curriculum after a study is done. And even then, unless doctors are going back to school, which they're not, right, they might have some like updated specific training and courses they take, but it's not like they're having to go back and retake and relearn, um, and dietary and nutrition is actually a, such a small part of the education in, for medical professionals that, like, this information they they don't have, even though it's totally available and has been out there for over 20 years. It's just, it it's incredible to me because I, I think about how much better people's lives could be health-wise if medical professionals didn't just have this information but acted on it do you like it's just I uh, have many things to say um, <laughs> but I will let you continue because I, I interrupted I, I, yeah I want to I want to just give medical professionals a little bit of a break here because this science is you know for example right the expert panel that was recommending to the American Medical Association whether or not to pathologize obesity said no, like the science does not support pathologizing obesity. And there was so much pressure to do so, right? This was also at the time of the Surgeon General's war on obesity from the mid nineties, um, which actually has helped uh, drive weight discrimination. I was going to say, yeah, a good, a good job increased. that did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, weight discrimination increased as a result. And that's important to sort of stick a pin in that because next week we're going to dive into how harmful weight discrimination actually is. But I I do want to say that also there's a huge body of scientific literature that also starts on the assumption that obesity directly increases the risk of obesity-associated diseases and doesn't acknowledge this body of scientific literature. So even um, how a doctor might be navigating the literature, depending on what they're looking for. It's um, what, where this needs to be, this needs to be in World Health Organization guidelines. Um, Because they're, I mean, they're, this is where all of the special interests that have been involved in all of the policy decisions around obesity becomes, you know, really disconcerting because, as much as I don't think that special interest funding automatically makes something biased, in this case, you can really see, um, you know, policies being made that go against what the science actually showed. And then you can see the funding from the diet industry. And so it, it really becomes a little bit harder to, to say that, that there wasn't some undue influence there. Um, but really, you know, I think that the challenge here is that the, the communication, it, it's not, you know, we don't expect a doctor to just be able to spend the type of time that I spend in PubMed reading papers. That is not an amount of time that a doctor who treats patients has in their life to be able to like dig into the science and then read, you know, read the references and read the cited by and, and go down these like tangents in order to really understand this one little piece of it. Um, that is something that I, you know, I'm, I'm privileged to have the time to be able to do when I tackle a topic like this. Um, but what's needed is the sort of independent scientific commissions to be able to review this data and come up with policy decisions for, for example, this could be influencing USDA guidelines. It could be in- influencing treatment guidelines for, for medical professionals. That, that piece of the communication is what 
is what is needed because it is, again, you know, even you can see the effect of uh, weight discrimination, weight stigma, even in how a lot of obesity research is um, how the like how the actual studies are designed, and so it takes these really. Um, I like think the implicit bias is in, built into the measurement codes. It's built right? into the measurements. Yes. Yeah. So it takes these types of studies, and we're going to get into next week some really cool in, studies in terms of their design to be able to get at this topic specifically. And it really takes studies to be able to separate out what is the impact of weight versus lifestyle and what is the impact of weight versus the experience of weight discrimination. It, it takes really careful study design to be able to ask those questions and, and find the answers to them. And so I think that in, in the, the landscape right now where weight bias is, has permeated every corner of society. I want to say it, right. It's even permeated scientific research in a lot of areas. And it takes these really carefully designed studies to be able to point out the flaws in that assumption. And so I, I want to just sort of, you know, I want to basically say, um, what's needed is for this, this science to be seen more broadly. And hopefully this podcast and my article is going to contribute to that. Um, but in order to really affect change, this, this needs to be uh, taken up at a policy level and, um, and not at a uh, grassroots expecting every single doctor to be able to, to dive, dive into this science and this kind of level of detail. Okay, fine. You can be the good guy for the doctors. Um <laughs> If I were a doctor, how about I'll put it this way. If I were a doctor, I would f be compelled to spend my off hours looking into research, not just on the latest drug that's available, but root cause. And I feel like this falls into that. And I do feel like that's part of the education process of most medical professionals. There are some really great ones that I'm not going to throw everybody under the same bus, but I feel like that has been to the detriment of at least American doctors for a long time is that we're often focused on what we're seeing and how to fix that thing with, you know, a drug or, a, you know, something like that versus like, well, why are we seeing it? Like, yes, we can medicate as needed, but also like maybe you have an, um, allergy, or maybe you have hormone disruption from something else that's causing your headaches, not just like here's a medication mm -hmm. for your headaches, you know, that's what I mean. So, okay, I do want to also, you mentioned the Biggest Loser contestants, and before we sign off, and this is why it's a part two, because we're like already um, at an hour and a half, but I, I have like a lot of um, thoughts on the Biggest Losers, <laughs> quotation marks they're not they're not losers like first of all that title is horrible and it really is the I whole never thought of it that way but just when you no. said it I was like wait no, a no, minute no no the whole show is designed to shame people and it's that's part of what you know we're going to get into next week but as you mentioned from some of these studies we're looking at these um candidates in a way that we might not otherwise have. And I think what's interesting is we know for a fact that the vast majority of these people, I don't know what the statistics is, but I'm, I'm very confident that it's like over 90% of the people 
gain all the weight back. And then they have all this like emotional trauma from the experience that they had. And they have long-term negative health effects from that boomerang of extreme weight loss to extreme weight gain on their bodies. And what's interesting is that when these people are interviewed and they talk about the difficulty, they don't talk about the diet as the problem. Most of the people are able to replicate what they were eating before. The problem is their lifestyle. The problem is they talk about how they they had to go back to real life. They had to go back to the stress of everyday living, having a job, you know, difficulties with family and friends. The what you talked about Sarah, all of the value that is now placed on them, not just with their family and friends, but also in society, now associating all this positivity with their weight and how, you know, they were completely shamed. And, you know, they changed their clothes halfway through the clothes show to make them more attractive, like they give them spandex and, you know, a different shirt and different kinds of things. That is with full intention. And we glorify these kinds of shows and these kinds of behaviors. And it is part of what ingrains in us is like, oh, they're better people after they lost weight. You know, it's never mind the fact that they were throwing up, never mind the fact that they are going to the doctor's office talking about, you know, health concerns, never never mind the fact that they're, you know, having a difficult time living in the real world and having mental health concerns, like they're, they're better people after. And I think this is one of those examples that I ask for people to really like give thought to if this is a show that you've seen before, or even if you haven't seen, maybe watch an episode and try to think about it from a different lens. Think about what it would like, what it would be like to be that obese person and how, what message is being sent from the perspective of the value that you have as an individual and your overall well-being. And I use that with quotation marks because we know that the science shows that losing that weight does not make you healthier. And knowing that everybody that came before you as a biggest loser regains the weight later, like there's just so much to unpack with these contestants that we can learn from because it's on such a grand scale. It's easier to kind of like pick apart some of those things and then apply it to your own life and and how you treat losing weight to yourself, to your loved ones. Do you value someone that you love a little bit more because you want them to be healthy? And I'm using my finger air quotes. You can't see it. I'm hand talking all over the place over here, right? Like, Is that a message that you're sending to yourself that you just want them to be healthier and therefore that's why you're, you know, you want them to lose weight? Now with some of this information that Sarah's provided, are you able to challenge yourself with that? These are the really hard parts of applying the science that Sarah's sharing and making a change in your life that is that difficult emotional journey that will bring tears and you know, uncomfortableness as you work through it. If you are feeling that, that is a good thing. That means that you're challenging this status quo that has led to, I mean, I would argue that this war on obesity and all of this kind of stuff is worse for us than the hyperpalatable foods that are also being subsidized by your government at the very same time (laughs) to, you know what I mean? To like contribute to this perfect storm of badness. I I don't know how else to put it, but it's heartbreaking when 
I feel like I'm on the edge of the land now looking at the ocean and watching the hurricane come in and just being like, stop, everybody get out. You know, like it's just, it's bad. It's so bad. Uh, I'm so glad you came back to your, your ocean um, analogy. I do want to know how, uh, how you're breathing on land right now, because this is the that's part the that thing. breaks my brain. I know that's part of what makes that analogy so great is I have to keep getting back into the ocean to breathe. Uh-huh. I it. have to keep eating. Like you can't just abandon the diet culture. Like if I could, I would just walk away from food. You know, like that's the easiest solution is just like, I'm just not going to think about it anymore. But we don't have that option. You know, it's, it's just, it's terrible. I got to keep going back into the ocean to breathe. Now the analogy just makes a hundred percent perfect sense. I was, I was missing that one little piece. Um, yeah, I think for me that has been the hardest part of this is also going from, um, you know, attempting to change my self-talk, right. Change how I, um, link health behaviors with weight loss and try to dissociate those. And I have found that, that inner critic voice can be really loud sometimes. And, um, and definitely, you know, next week on the show, we're going to, we're going to pick up here in terms of the science and we're going to really examine how harmful weight stigma is to health and how weight stigma can actually explain, uh, the vast majority of the negative health impacts that are associated with obesity. Um, and then what the mechanism is behind that. So how is weight stigma actually um, creating those negative health outcomes? Um, but then I think it's also going to be really helpful to wrap up next week with um, sharing more of our personal experiences and sort of where we are in this health journey. Because I think this piece, this piece of um, dissecting our own implicit biases and um, and knowing, you know, making that transition from um, feeling like uh, a contributor to diet culture, even though it was sort of an unwitting to really trying to challenge diet culture. Uh, just, I mean, this is the most base assumption of diet culture is that you would be healthier if you lost weight and to dive into the science that actually completely undermines that base assumption, I think is really, really important. So we're going to, to share some of the the strategies that we have found helpful for the emotional part of this journey, because I think it is just so hard to, to re-examine and to deprogram something that is so deeply ingrained from, I mean, from the time we're aware of the people around us. I mean, I, I have these memories of my mom counting points, right? Like I, I mean, those, those experiences go so far back because it's been now, you know, 120 years of this stigma perpetuating. And so we're at a point where it's generational memory. And so unpacking that, I think it takes each of us as individuals to really find our, our points of, of, um, change within ourselves. So where we can sort of shift that mindset, but then also having those conversations around us to help um, enlighten uh, our friends and family who are still on that hamster wheel of terribleness. Yeah. And I think as much as you might 
step off the hamster wheel. Sometimes you get on it. I find myself having those moments. Um, you know, it's just, it's a constant, it's a constant, you know, reminder. Um, and if you feel like you want more on this, uh, Sarah and I will be hopping over to patreon.com slash the whole view, where every single week we dive in and have a second podcast episode and share what we really think. And it is not PG. So I hope that you can join us. This would be a great one to pop over for and also give you access to the live Q&A that we did last week. When you join, you get access to everything beforehand. And it's only five bucks a month and it's a great way to support us. So thank you for all of you. If you've made it to the end of the show, we will be back uh, next week with part two to dive into the rest. And I promise it's going to be good. And (laughs) please have patience with us to get there. And thank you for being awesome members of our community, being open to learning and making it through to the end. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.